0: How many um, last week prayed for the election? Prayed that God would grant us his leaders? Did he? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He put who he wants in place you know that? God raises up one and puts down another. There's nobody who's in a place of rulership except that God has allowed it and God has put them there. Now you and I, in our great wisdom, may not be able to figure it all out. But we prayed last week for the elections. We prayed that God's will would be done, didn't we? And no doubt, many of you, if you weren't in service last weekend... You prayed on your own in anticipation of the elections, and as well we should. But now that we prayed for God's will to be done, now I think that we should also continue to pray that God would bless and give wisdom to our leaders. Is that a reasonable thing to do? All right, let's pray. God, we, we repent of our grumbling, and we repent of our own human wisdom lord there are some choices that have been made and some people put in office that some of us would rather not be in office but lord you put them there and we bow before your sovereignty and we in obedience now trust you and we pray and ask your blessing upon our leaders on our president on the con- congress the senate lord the supreme court and the whole judicial system the local leaders that were elected in the states and in the local communities. Father, we pray for them. We pray that you would grant them wisdom, spiritual understanding, and knowledge of your will. We pray that you would strengthen them with the strength of your might, that they may lead in a manner worthy of you in every respect. So Lord, we commend them to you. We pray, Father, uh, have mercy on them they have a difficult task. Protect them from greed. Protect them, Lord, from deceit. Cause them to rule with honor and integrity. We ask, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I think that's appropriate, don't you? Good. how about if we study in Hebrews chapter 11 and we are going to finish verse 7 Lord willing we're talking about Noah he is the object of our study and He is the illustration of one who obeys in faith. If you read with me verse 7, by faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. In that verse, there are three things that we learn about Noah's faith that would give us understanding of the genuineness of his faith, and hence, there are obviously uh, lessons in there for us. We can learn much from Noah, and it's important... Because the Apostle Paul tells us at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, check yourself out to make sure you are of the faith. And so we're going to learn something here from Noah about being men and women of faith. Okay? Now, I said to you last week that the first thing that we learn uh, about the proof that Noah's faith was genuine was that Noah responded to God's Word. God spoke to him, we saw in uh, verses 13 and 14 of Genesis chapter 6. God said very simply, I'm going to destroy the world and all who live in it, uh, except you and your family. He said, build an ark, build a boat. And we, as we read on, we saw that Noah didn't argue, he didn't make excuses, he didn't complain, he didn't question God. He didn't procrastinate. He didn't whine. But rather, he simply began obeying God. He simply began obeying God. Now therein, there's a huge, huge lesson for us, isn't there? Not to procrastinate. Not to argue with God. After all, the Bible tells us that his will is good, pleasing, and perfect, doesn't he? Who would want to argue with that which is good, pleasing, and perfect? Who would want to complain? Who would want to object? Now you and I can say that right now logically because, well, we're being very logical and objective right now. But we're not in the midst of some situation that's challenging us. Well, I should say probably we are, but we can be real objective right now. It's critical for us to see that trusting God means that we say, Yes, Lord. And then when He speaks to us in about all manner of different things in our life, that we take that step of faith, Yes, Lord, trusting Him. I had a conversation this week with a couple from our church, and they have been estranged for some time, and it was a miracle just seeing them in the same room. It wasn't my doing, I didn't ask them to come, it just, it happened. And I didn't have a clue what I was going to say to them. I didn't see any real hope for them whatsoever. But I knew that where the Spirit of the Lord is, something can happen. And so I prayed in the morning... I said, Lord, you just lead. I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know how this is going to end up. And so when we sat down to talk, I didn't even know what to say. I didn't know how to open up. I didn't know what they wanted. So I, I, I basically just began to speak. And I just began to tell them what an embarrassment they were to the cause of Christ. And I began to rebuke them. And I, at any moment, expected this husband to reach across the table and punch my lights out. But he didn't. We went on for probably a good 20 minutes. And I just kept telling them what an embarrassment they have been. They had no excuse, although we always want to offer excuses and rationale for our, our disobedience, our unbelief. At the end of our time, I said, so what where are we gonna go? What are we gonna do? What do you want? And the husband made a joke. I said, This is no joking matter. And I said, I would hope that you would have said to me, I want what God wants. I want God's will more than anything else in my life. And I will do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to do God's will. He looked at me and he got kind of teary-eyed. He said, that's what I want. I said, well, now we have that settled. So what are you going to do about it? I never, ever believed that I would see this. He reached over, across the table, took his wife's hand, leaned towards her and embraced her, and said, could you please forgive me? At that point, I said, I'm going to excuse myself from the room. You do what you need to do. I came back in about 10 minutes, and they were kneeling at my couch in my office in prayer together. I tell you that story... Because we need to be people who say, yes, Lord. We need to be people who are willing to surrender our will to Him, very simply, and do what's right. I say, can you just be nice to each other? Can you just say please and thank you? That's called sandbox theology. No excuses. No excuses. He wanted to point, and he wanted to to intimate to me some hypothetical situation in which, and obviously he was pointing out to her, to me, her, her, her uh, idiosyncrasies. I said, doesn't matter. And then she said, well, you know, he, doesn't matter. What's your responsibility? What's your responsibility, regardless of what the other person does or doesn't do? We're Christians. We're different. We don't live a reactionary life. We live a responsive life and we always respond with love and grace and kindness and goodness and mercy. I have a couple of weak amens in the front here. That's what we aspire to, isn't it? Noah doesn't procrastinate. He doesn't say, well, you don't understand, God. I'm not a boat builder. Doesn't matter. God can make you a boat builder. Can not He? Can He do anything? Yes! He says, I'm the God of the impossible. For some of us our God is too small. I saw the very power of God come over these two people and most especially over this man unbelievable and I saw their hearts just melt and I saw the the tension go out of the room I was a witness to it a miracle happened in my office this week I don't know where they are now I don't I haven't heard from them, I don't know what's going on but by faith I am believing that God is continuing what he began Those two people were marked irrevocably by the Holy Spirit. And as I was talking to them, I was thinking, Whoa, you are really getting strong. You better slow down. You better lighten up. You better take it easy. And it just got hotter and hotter and hotter. I had all I could do to stay in my chair. And there were no excuses when I was done. God was moving. Beloved, Noah responded to God's word. Noah responded to God's word. Say that with me. Noah responded to God's word. Now, let's say, let's put your name in there. All right, ready? Zach responded to God's word. Did you put your name or my name? (laughs) I suggested to you last week that Noah, more than any other person in all of history, illustrated the work of faith, obedience. Nobody else in all of history illustrated that work of faith, which is obedience, like Noah. So the first dynamic is Noah responded to God's Word. The second thing that we're going to look at, the second dynamic is in the second part of verse 7. Notice the writer says this, By faith he what? He condemned the world. So that's what we're looking at. Noah condemned the world. That's number two. What we mean by that is his faith was a judgment on those who would not believe. His faith was a judgment on those who would not believe. I'm reminded of, uh, of a passage, a, 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 a situation in, it's recorded, I think, in Mark chapter 1. I don't remember the exact place. Uh, Jesus has just healed somebody. I think it's a leper. And uh, he says, uh, He says, now go show yourself to the chief priests who were the, also the health inspectors of the time. Go show yourself to them, because that was required under the law, that they may, he may be pronounced clean if he was healed. So he says, go show yourself to the chief priests, and this is very interesting, as a testimony to them. But you can also translate that as a testimony against them. So what are we suggesting? We're suggesting that faith not only can be a testimony to, but it can also be a testimony against And it's a testament against those who will not believe. Against those who will not believe. Now Noah's obedience, I think, included his passing on, not just building the ark, but it included passing on to the people of his day God's message of coming judgment. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. Apparently, God called Noah to preach while he built. Now the preaching, I suspect, was probably more difficult than the building of the ark. Hard jobs sometimes are easier to deal with than hard people and he certainly had hard people to deal with and to preach to. Jeremiah had hard people to deal with. The times in which Noah lived were among the most evil if they were not the most evil and corrupt in all of human history. There is no more corrupt time than the time of Noah. In fact, we're told in Genesis again chapter 6 verse 5 that the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. I and mean, it was bad time. Wicked people. He lived amongst the most hard hearted and corrupt people known in the history of the world. Worse than our time. Our society is a picnic compared to what Noah lived in. I mean, if anybody had a reason to regret the time in which he lived, it would be Noah, don't you think? Complaining? Whining? Saying, oh, why was I born now? Go back to the good old days. After all, he's 500 years old, right? (laughs) Noah didn't complain about where he was born He didn't complain about his lot in life and he didn't complain about his calling. Is there some instruction there for us? We don't complain about our lot in life. It's very easy for us to become dissatisfied, but we only become dissatisfied when we look at somebody else's lot and we want what they've got. We become covetous, envious. and we start complaining about our situation. Or we, be, we, we start complaining about uh, where and when we were born. Or our calling. I, 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 want, I want to be able to do what they do. I mean, God has a plan for you. He has a purpose for you. Focus on what He wants for you. Noah simply obeyed as he was, and he obeyed where he was. That's good, isn't it? Good advice. It's kind of like, you know, blossom where you're planted. Be faithful where you are. If you're faithful where you are, you can be what? You can be trusted with some more. You can, God can bless you and lift you up. What do you think Noah's job was, his real job? What was Noah's real job? Noah's real job was to warn the people of his time... That God would soon judge them because of their wickedness and their unbelief. That was his real job. Remember, he was a preacher. He wasn't just a boat builder. And all the people of his day, they they had the same opportunity. If you think about this, they had the same opportunity to know God. They had the same opportunity, opportunity to know God's will as did Noah. It wasn't like, well, we didn't know. People offer excuses. Well, I didn't know. But the difference between Noah and them was not so much the amount of knowledge and and, and exposure to the light and the truth, but rather their response to it. See, why Noah responded, they rejected. They wouldn't believe. Is God happy with judgment? Is God happy with judgment? Is that one of his favorite things? No, it's not. No matter how well deserved that judgment is, God is not happy with judgment. And his judgment, beloved, is always tempered with mercy. His judgment is always tempered with mercy. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, we read this. God was grieved and his heart was filled with pain. He was grieved and his heart was filled with pain as he looked upon the wickedness and the fact that man would have to be judged so severely. God was not happy. He was not pleased that he was going to have to judge his creation. And God allowed 120 years that period was for the ark to be built, he allowed 120 years for the people to be warned and to repent. And if they would repent, guess what? There would be no judgment. 120 years. Is that a significant period of time, do you think? Sure. The whole time while, God was, while Noah was building the ark, and, and just the building of the ark... Was a dramatic message in and of itself, wasn't it? Of coming judgment. Of I mean, it's, there's a flood coming. People watching him. Here he is. It's it's like he's in. He lives in Kansas. You know, he's living in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, Mesopotamian Valley, and it's like living in the Midwest. And he's building this huge boat in his backyard, and people are going, "Whoa, a boat! Cool." Not only was the boat a witness, but Noah, Noah had to witness to them. Warning them. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, that God patiently waited. God isn't willing that any should perish. He is a patient God. He patiently waited hundred and twenty years in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Aren't you glad that God is a patient God? I don't know about you, but I wouldn't have waited 120 years. I'd have been on them like a cheap suit. I'd have made it rain, and I'd have just plucked Noah out of there. See, God was preparing judgment, and while He was preparing judgment, He was also preparing a way of escape. The way of escape was what? It was the ark, wasn't it? Judgment's coming! Judgment's coming! Noah's building his boat. The boat is a testimony, but also Noah's preaching. Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. Repent, repent, repent. Did Jesus say something like that? Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Yeah. Read the Olivet Discourse, and he talks about God's judgment coming at the end of time. Read the book of Revelation. John talks about the judgment of God. Paul talks about it throughout his epistles. God's judgment we have to contend we have to deal with God's judgment these people of Noah's day they had ample warning of judgment and they had also ample knowledge of the truth let me give you some examples of the the breadth of their understanding and the breadth of their knowledge for one thing they had the witness of nature, did they not? Romans chapter 1, verse 20. It'll be there in a second. There it is. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, so right from the very beginning of the world, God's invisible qualities, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been, what? Clearly seen. seen. Not obscured. God's not playing a hide-and-seek game. He's made Himself known through what has been made. So that men are what? Without excuse. These people of Noah's day had no excuse. All they had to do was to look around and think for a minute. They had a witness from creation, from nature of the existence of God. Secondly, they also had Abel's testimony about proper worship of God. Remember we talked about Abel and proper worship? How does one worship God? How can one worship God? It's the only way that one can worship God. On the basis of what? A blood sacrifice, a sin offering. Now, do you think that the knowledge of Abel's sacrifice stopped? In Noah's day? No, it didn't. Because in Genesis chapter 6 verse 9, Noah is described as one who walked with God, reminiscent of who else? Enoch, remember? Enoch walked with God. You can't walk with God, except that you're in relationship with God. You can't be in relationship with God, except that on the basis of what? A blood sacrifice. A sacrifice for sin. So not only did they have the witness of of nature, they had an ongoing testimony from Abel about proper worship. They had an ongoing testimony from Enoch about proper fellowship. And in addition to that positive light, or those positive perspectives... they had visibility of God's punishment of Cain, which would have been and was meant to be a constant reminder of what God thought of sin. So not only do they have have the witness of nature, they have Abel's testimony, they have Enoch's testimony, but also Cain's testimony about what God thinks of sin. But that doesn't stop there. We're told in verse 3 of chapter 6 of Genesis that God had been contending with them. Striving with them. Contending or striving means that He was trying to turn their hearts back to Him. The Apostle Paul says in the New Testament that the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict The world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The work of the Holy Spirit is to kick out all of our props. The work of the Holy Spirit is to contend with us, to convince us that we have no basis upon which we can justify ourselves. To convict the world of sin. The world says there's no such thing as sin. I'm a good person. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict us of sin to convince us of it, to make us understand what it is, so that we'd be sorry for it. Secondly, to convict the sin, not only of uh, the world of sin, but also of righteousness. We are not righteous, are we? No. And yet people are all the time justifying themselves. That couple in my office, they immediately wanted to justify their actions justify themselves. I said, there is no justification. Matters not what he said, she said, he did, she did. It matters what you do in the name of our Lord. And also the world tells us that there's there's no real judgment. Oh, but the Holy Spirit says there's judgment coming. There's judgment coming. Wake up, smell the roses, man or it's too late. So you've got the Spirit of God contending with these people, and in that passage in, in Genesis chapter 6, God says, I shall no longer contend with these people forever. He'd been trying to turn them. He'd been trying to turn them. It's like God just steps back. He says, no more. And lastly, they had 120 years of righteous preaching by Noah. What more could God have done to get these people's attention? They had no excuse for their sin before Noah began building the ark, and they had even less excuse for their sin after he built the ark. A hundred and twenty years—think of this hundred, even in a time when people, many people, were living to almost a thousand years old. A hundred and twenty years was more. I would suggest to you, more than ample time for anyone to repent who wanted to. Who wanted to? You got to want to. You know, it's amazing to me how how when you when you confront somebody with their sin, they can't be indifferent. They can't be indifferent either they're going to harden themselves or they're going to repent you can't there's no middle ground you can't be indifferent there's no way these people harden themselves after 120 years of preaching and all the other evidence and testimony and I'll bet you they made all manner of excuses for not repenting and for putting it off. Tomorrow? Well, I don't know. I'm not sure. I've never seen rain. How do we know? And on and on and on. I'll bet you Noah himself was tempted to make excuses about his qualifications as a boat builder and about his qualifications as a preacher. I'll bet he was tempted. Surely, surely, Satan must have suggested to him more than once that he had plenty of time to build the ark. I mean, hundred and twenty years gives a person a lot of time. A great deal of opportunity for procrastination. Tomorrow, I'll get started tomorrow. I'll, I'll get saved tomorrow. I'll go to many churches next week. Tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when we get on with it. When God calls, here I am, Lord. I have a little note in the front of my Bible, and you you have to have some appreciation of this. It says, Henrietta Mears. Now, Henrietta Mears was probably one of the most godly women in our century to live. And she affected some tremendous men of God, uh, Bill Bright, uh, Billy Graham, others, instrumental in their lives. And she was a a woman who never really uh, wanted visibility, took credit, uh, she didn't strive for recognition, position, and so forth. But this this little note says Henry Etemir is often misquoted. And if you if you remember back when Samuel was a little boy in the temple, and the Lord spoke, and the Lord spoke, and woke him up, and woke him up, and he went and talked to old Eli. You know, did you call? Did you call? And the the last time Eli told him is that's the Lord. And you remember that? you remember what Samuel's response was when he realized it was God talking to him? Well, Henry Mears mis, often misquoted this. She said, listen, Lord, for thy servant speaketh. <laughs> you know, often we, we're the ones who are doing all the speaking. We're giving the orders. We're dictating. We're saying, God, do it this way, do it that way. We got to be on our face. We ought to be just saying, God, God, just have mercy on me. Whatever your will is, I know it's the best. Don't let me miss your will. What does that mean? We can't make requests? No, we can make requests. The Bible says it. Make a request known to God. Let Him know what you want. And do so with uh, with thanksgiving and such. Then His peace will guard your mind and heart. doesn't say He'll answer it according to the way you want But you know, we have a great, great, great tendency to procrastinate getting things going. Labor. Tomorrow. Next day. Next day. And nothing ever happens. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. God's not going to speak. He looks at our heart. He knows when we're really listening. He's not going to waste his time. But Noah didn't make excuses, did he? He didn't procrastinate, did he? He simply preached and built just as he was called to do. Amidst all the ridicule, and I imagine there was tremendous ridicule, 120 years? Amidst all the wickedness, the long years with little evidence of success? I mean, no one's responding. What do we do when there's no response? Well, we said, obviously, we quit. Any logical person would see that. Why keep banging your head up against a wall? Wait a minute. Get that boat finished. Don't quit. Keep preaching keep doing it I talked to lots of pastors who are really struggling in their churches and some of them who have gone out of our church and we planted churches with them over the years and uh, you know it, it, it's a fascinating study they're going to go out and they're going to win the world for Jesus and, and I admire their enthusiasm and their zeal but boy they run up against a brick wall and the slugging gets tough. It's hard work. And there's little return for all the investment of your time and energy and your heart. And the enemy bears in hard and he says, Well, no one's responding. Doesn't seem to be anything happening. Maybe you should quit. Do you know how many pastors have been blown out of the water? Because they listen to that voice to quit, to give up. Far too many. You know how many marriages have been blown out of the water because people have given up? Do you know how many people walk away from the Lord because it's not easy? How do we respond? To these kinds of things? How do we respond when there are unanswered questions? How would you respond after 120 years of unanswered questions? How did Noah respond? He just obeyed and he 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 obeyed. And he obeyed.
1: You say you just, you just want us to blindly obey?
0: No, I want you to obey with your eyes open. <laughs> <laughs> so God wants, doesn't He? Is that so hard? Problem is, we get our focus too often on moi, right? Ourself. And then we start going me 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 me. It's not that difficult to understand. And God promises the grace. We just have to be willing. Beloved, not only is God's warning of judgment an act of mercy, but even the judgment itself has a merciful aspect. What do we do when we have a, a cancer we go to the doctor, we pray, and we say, Lord, if you don't heal, we'll go to the doctor, and the, and we just pray you'd give the doctor wisdom and, and, and cut the cancer out, right? So while surgery, if I can use this illustration this way, is in a form of judgment on the body and on the tumor, it's also simultaneously an act of mercy, isn't it? because it allows the rest of the body to walk away in health. See, if God doesn't cut out that tumorous generation, that cancerous generation, if He doesn't deal with it and destroy it, it's going to overwhelm all the rest of the world. You see this happening periodically throughout Scripture. It happens with Sodom and Gomorrah, happened with the Flood, You see it happen with Ananias and Sapphira in the early church. Liars. Liars. Deceitful in the early church. You see it happening. God bringing judgment. But the judgment just isn't in and of itself. There's always also an aspect of mercy. And that is for the preservation of the rest of the body. Noah's life was a testimony against that wicked and despicable dark world. It was a testimony, his life was a testimony that shined in bright condemnation. Think about this. Here's a guy who is righteous. Here's a guy who walks with God. Here's a guy that is unlike anybody else in his culture. Would he stand out? Absolutely. Absolutely. Someone said, black never seems so black as when white is put beside it. Boy, you really see the contrast and you really understand black when you see white beside it. The person of faith... Now think about this for a minute. The person of faith rebukes the world just by living. The person of faith... Rebukes the world just by his or her living. Even if that person never utters a word of rebuke or reproach. Just their life is a testimony. Just their life is a statement of judgment and condemnation. You see that? I read a, a story about a young man in Athens. Athens, Greece, years ago in the time of Socrates... This young man was reported that he went to Socrates and said, I hate you. I hate you because every time I meet you, you show me what I am. Wouldn't it be great to have people say that to us? I'm serious. Wouldn't it be great? People come up to you and they say, I hate
1: you. Why do you hate me? Because every time I see you, you show me what I am.
0: Then receive Jesus. Are people saying that to us? Are people saying that to the church? I don't think so. I think the vast majority of people are not saying in mocking the church and ridiculing the church because we we are showing Christ's righteousness. I think the people are mocking the church because of our worldliness because of our shallowness, because of our insipidness. I think the church is weak. And if you watch the majority of Christian television, the majority of it, it is shallow and inane. It is showy and glitzy. It, it doesn't feed your soul. It doesn't challenge your life. You drive by most churches today and you see it on their marquees. Why we have a new, we have a new sign. Everybody see our new sign out there? Yes. Our first, our first, our first sign, our first message. How to avoid hell. Not how to be successful in life. You know, we 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 are we are the we are we live in a therapeutic generation. Do you know that? It, it's it's you know it's therapy. Get it's good. Go get therapy. Go get counseling. No one's saying repent. No one's saying repent. No one's getting in our face and you're a sinner. Repent. And I I think you know we have we have dwelt so long and so much on the love of God that we watered down the gospel, we have to give equal time, I think, to the severity of God. Paul says, the wrath of God is being revealed. In Romans, the first three chapters, he tells us about God's wrath. He tells us about His judgment. He gives us the bad news, and He prepares us for the good news. People have to understand there's bad news. You can't give them the good news unless they really have a felt need for it. That's what I believe. All of a sudden you have incentive. Woo! That's what's going to happen? Oh yeah. Do you want to go to hell? No. You know how you want to get out of it? Yeah. You want to know where the fire escape is? Yes. It's Jesus. Perhaps I think the saddest lesson from Noah's day is that men have not changed in their attitude towards God since then. and will not change until the Lord returns. Jesus tells us in his own words in Matthew's Gospel and all of that discourse. Matthew chapter 24, verse 37-39. Let me read it to you. He says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the com- at the coming of the Son of Man. Nothing changes. As wicked as people were then, they'll be just as wicked at the coming of the Son of Man. They're going to be carrying on life. They're going to be involved in carnality. They're going to be involved in worldliness. They're not going to be ready. He says, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. They were just conducting their everyday business. Oblivious. Absolutely oblivious. They were oblivious because they weren't paying attention. He says, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. I'd want to know, wouldn't you? How would you feel... If your friends knew about this and didn't tell you. <laughs> and when you're in hell, you go, why? Well, you couldn't just exactly blame your friends. Because you have ample witness too. But we are called to be a witness, aren't we, in the church? We're called to be light. We're called to be a testament. We're called to go out. We're, to, we're called to go preach the good news. But in order for people to receive good news, they have to know the bad news. And and my my sense is that we are not telling people the truth, the whole truth. We're telling them part of the truth. We're emphasizing part of the truth. Does that mean you go beat somebody over the head with hell? Well, some people you may need to. But most people not. Most people, you can sit down and you say, Can I talk to you about some stuff that's real serious? Can I talk to you about what, what, what's up, what's, what, what this world is headed for? Can I talk to you about what you're headed for? If somebody came and they were, they were sincere and genuine and loving to you, they, they exhibited, they cared for you, would you listen to them? I think so, I would. So I care about what happens to you. I really care about what happens to you. I've got to tell you. Please let me tell you. You tell him about God's judgment. You tell him about hell. You tell them, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. The parallels of Noah's day to our own are sobering. In Noah's day, God's message was rejected just as it's rejected today. In his day, wickedness, immorality, violence, lewdness, vulgarity, profanity, lying, killing, blasphemy, they're they were rampant then, they're rampant today. If you turn on the television you go to a movie, I mean, you, you can barely even go to a movie anymore. You can barely ever go to a movie anymore without hearing his name used in a in a in a vain manner, or without some sexual innuendo, if not out and out violence, gratuitous violence, and it's on TV now it's being touted. It's acceptable. It's, it's what people want. Never. I mean, growing up, you would never see this stuff. Never see this stuff. And yet it's every place now. I watched, um, what was it, uh, the other night, uh, they had a... One of, the, one of the news magazine shows, they did a thing on homosexual marriages. I had all I could do to pull my hair out because of the slant that it was presented. And they got some Episcopal priest who said, No, man, this is cool. It's, you know, it's just marriage. You know, and and the slant was just unbelievable. The parallels are there. God warned those people through Noah of judgment. He told Noah, you tell them judgment's coming. Beloved, I believe that we have a responsibility to tell people judgment's coming. we can be just as sure as they should have been that judgment is coming because God has promised it just as clearly and men deserve it just as much I read a, I read a quote years ago and I don't know who, who first coined this but, but I read Ruth Graham quoting this Billy Graham's wife. She said, "If God doesn't judge our society, He owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology." Huh? Well, I, Ruth Graham said it years ago, and I don't know who said it before her. She may have adopted it from somebody else. Well, Dennis Prager may have said it the other day too, but he got it from Ruth Graham. Oh, he did. He said he did. He got it from Ruth? He said he got. Oh. He gave her the credit too. Good. Judgment's coming, but the next judgment's going to be different from the first one. Two ways. It's not going to be by flood, it's going to be by fire. And it will be the last judgment. It will be the last. And the only security, the only security is refuge in God's ark, Jesus Christ, right? Now that leads me to the last point. We'll go through this real quickly. This is the last part of verse 7. Again, by faith, by faith, Noah received God's righteousness. How did Noah receive God's righteousness? By faith. By faith he condemned the world, and by faith he received God's righteousness. Genesis 6, 9, in that verse, we're told... That he was righteous. He's the first person in the Bible to be called righteous. All who believe. All who believe in God and believe in Jesus Christ are righteous. Maybe not always in practice, but they certainly are in position. In other words, we never lose our position, we never lose our standing with God. If we have believed. If we have been born again. Jesus' righteousness, it's His righteousness that's attributed to us, it's reckoned to us, it's imputed to us. And it's done so by faith. In other words, God gives it. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, talks about this righteousness that comes by faith. It's a righteousness from God. It's not man-generated. And it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. God gives us a right standing with Him. He makes us, remakes us, if I can say that rightly now. We have a bent towards Him instead of a bent away from Him. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that Jesus, He who knew no sin, became sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You can't be righteous apart from Christ. You cannot be righteous apart from Christ. And that righteousness comes by faith in Jesus Christ. No other way. God the Father sees us as He sees His Son Jesus. He sees His Son Jesus as holy and righteous. He sees us holy and righteous. Why? Because we are in Christ. We are with Christ. We are in Him. If you were to put on some colored glasses, everything you look on take look at take, takes on that color, isn't that true? If you put on rose colored glasses, you see the world as rose colored. Well, that's kind of how God sees us. He looks at us through the lens of his son. He looks at us through Jesus. And he sees us as he sees Jesus. Thousands and thousands of years before Jesus became a man, God looked at Noah, and he saw his son. He looked at Noah, and he saw Jesus. Because Noah believed. Noah took God at his word. That's what it means. He took God at his word. When other people broke God's commandments, Noah kept them. When other people were deaf to God's warning, Noah listened. And when other men laughed at God, Noah reverenced him. Stark contrast. In an age when people disregarded God for Noah, God was the supreme reality of his life. God wants to be the supreme reality of our life. It matters not what your neighbor does or doesn't do. It matters not what your spouse does or doesn't do. What matters is what you do. What matters is your faith. What matters is your focus. Is he the light of your life? Don't wait for somebody else. Don't wait for somebody else. You press on. You don't know that you may be like Esther. You may be raised up just for that, that one moment, so that as you press on, other people will follow your lead. Think about that. You may be the source of salvation of many, but only if if Christ is really, truly your everything. If He's not, well, tragedy is that that's the case for a lot of people. Jesus said, Oh, they worship me with their lips. I don't have their hearts. It's easy to sing songs. Challenge is, Lord, I want you. I want you. Your will be done. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you, Lord, that your word is sure and true. I thank you for the example of Noah. Lord, for his utter obedience. For his tenacity. Lord, all of us look at Noah and we admire him, but we should be no different. We should be people also like him who hear your word, respond to it. As we respond to it, Lord, our lives are transformed and our very lives are, 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 are tremendous light in the darkness. and that our lives rebuke that darkness. Lord, that we can be righteous, not of our own efforts, but rather because we take you at your word, because we have believed what you said to us about Jesus. Father, I pray you strengthen the church. Strengthen us, O God. Your word says that the The heart of the king is like channels of water in your hands. You turn it whichever way you wish. Lord, for those of us whose hearts aren't fully turned, turn our hearts towards you. That we might surrender more fully. We might trust you more fully. Indeed, that we may obey you more fully. Lord, give us a, a view of heaven. Of Glory. I love you tonight. I give you thanks, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand and let's worship the Lord. Is He worthy?
1: Yes. Amen, He is. noise, all you people, sing a song to the Lord, of His goodness and His mercy, of His faithfulness and love. Make a joyful noise, all you people, sing a song to the Lord, of His goodness and His mercy, of His faithfulness and love worship Joyful. Make a joyful noise, all you people. Sing a song to the Lord of His goodness and His mercy, of His faithfulness and love. A little higher, make a joyful noise, all you people. Sing a song to the Lord of His goodness and His mercy, of His faithfulness and love.